the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So just a quick review where we are. So we have seen that God has chosen Saul to become a king. And we have seen that God was not happy with the Israelite of deciding to have a king because it means they have rejected God reigning over them. When God picked Saul, the people of Israel did not honor him as a king. And his first day on the job, he was working, looking after the sheep. And all of a sudden what happened, a neighboring king came by and attacked the small city of Israel. And he told them, if you want peace with me, I'm going to block all your right eyes. And we said, this is a sign of them not able to protect themselves. And now what happened was they came, tried to look for help. They asked this king to give us seven days. They tried to look for help. They came. The words came to Saul. And Saul basically took an ox. He cut it into pieces and sent it all over Israel and said, whoever does not come and join us in war, this is what happened to their ox. Now we're going to continue from verse 8. When he numbered them at Bezak, the children of Israel were three hundred thousand and the men of Judah thirty thousand. Just get a couple of quick points on this verse. In Job 25.3 it says the honor of princes to know the number of their men. But it's the honor of the king of kings that there is no that there is not any number of his armies. What does that mean? Princes in the old days used to show off by counting how many men under them. But a king does not count how many men because it means as if his men can be counted. You know, he has unlimited number of men. So and a king should not count his men. But here we have Saul starting his life as a king and it's not at this time it's not he's counting them because he's prideful remember God actually got upset with David when he counted his men but here Saul is in a different place Saul is in a different place and that's why it's important for us to understand the concept that our God truly looks at the heart when David did the same thing God was not happy with him when Saul did it, God didn't say anything. Because David, when he did it, he was prideful. Saul, when he did it, he was trying to actually plan a, 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 a tactic to attack the enemy. To attack the enemy. And that's why one of the important things we want to keep in mind, sometimes people get obsessive with small details. But if my intention to please God, It means I have good intention. If I desire to walk with God, even if I, I do something not fully right or I overlook something out of lack of understanding, I should not be obsessed over it as much as obsessed over my love for God. And sometime in our spiritual life, the devil does this, make us obsessed with the small details rather than being obsessed with our love for God. And that makes our life with God so dry. But here, God allowed this, said no problem, 
because Saul at this time, he was humble, he began his life, and he started to, uh, to serve and uh, to, to try to prepare for war. And they said to the messengers who came, look what happens. The messengers that came, telling them, look, they're going to kill us, they're going to pluck our eyes. But they said to the messengers, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh, Gilead, this is a small city that's being attacked in Israel, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. You see, this is the kind of trust that people have when they act with the intention of, uh, of good intention of being on the side of God. When people are driven by the Spirit, telling him tomorrow, we, you will have help. Are you sure? You're a new king. You don't know how many, you just... You know, I don't know how quickly these people... Remember, last time I told you, Israel never had an army before. So imagine, get a few farmers, farmers coming out. Everybody is holding their axe, a little bit of a staff. You know, it's really funny. Yani when you see the, this 30,000 people, it's really funny. They, they, they don't have horses. Are you sure you're going to make it there? Tomorrow we'll be there by noon. Saul is confident because he was led by the Spirit of God. He knows for the first time in his life he allows God to lead him in, in the future. And then he tells them, I'm coming to you at night, at, 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 at noon. Always get the good news for us always comes when the sun is out, our Lord Jesus Christ is the son of righteousness. And when they heard the news, the Bible says, eh, they were glad. Reminds you almost of the Annunciation, St. Mary. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So what happened was, remember Nash of uh, the Amorites, he, was, he told them, I'm going to give you a week. And from how weak they are, he didn't even send a scout to see what are they doing? He knows this, this little village is nobody. So they told him, give us a week. So they sent him a messenger. Messengers told, told him, tomorrow we're going to come out to you. He probably thinks that they're going to come out tomorrow and he's going to pluck their eyes. Okay? Well, with the people of Jabesh, they're very smart. Because they did not tell the enemy their plans. They did not tell the enemy that they have people come to help them. And that's extremely an important idea in our spiritual life. Sometimes when I am following, following a spiritual system or a spiritual canon, sometimes it's good not to share that with everybody. Because the devil will come and step over it. Obviously, I share it with my father of confession maybe with another person, what system I'm following. But when I start sharing, 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 a, a big part of the blessing will be lost because the devil will try to create holes and loops into the system I have and try to make me doubt more and try to make other people make fun of me more. So it's important for us here when I am ready to act in willingness 
that I, I follow up with my father's confession and fault. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three uh, companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So what is he saying here? He's saying that Israel came very early in the morning, almost 5 a.m. Israel, who have no tools, who have no weapons, real weapons, they came and destroyed the army of the Ammonites. And by the sun, by the sun time, it's not like the army arrived. The army was already victorious. The army already won. And this victory, by the way, was not imaginable without the work of God. Look, one of the things that I keep, keep coming to me a lot this week is the idea how much God works when I understand and realize my needs for Him. God worked a lot with the people of Israel when they realized they needed Him. God told the rich man today in the scripture we read this morning, He told him, you don't need me. What I want you to do, I want you to be in a state where you need me. You understand how much you want to depend on me. So those people here, they came and won an impossible war because they realized how much they needed God. A lot of times we say, I need God when I have an exam, when I have a test, when I am trying to find a job, when I'm trying to find a partner. I feel like I need God. But this is not the need we're talking about. We're talking about the internal cry of our souls from inside. The full dependence and full happiness and the full love that our soul is looking for. Only then God can be so victorious in our life. Only then God can eh, be so victorious in our life. I remember, I'll tell you a story and then we'll continue. I remember one of, uh, one of the people I know well, he told me like he was in a different state and uh, just moved to a new state and it was the Feast of Nativity. So he told me I prayed the feast and then I left the church and his family obviously is in a different state. So he had no place to go have dinner after the feast. You know, this is like a family time usually after the feast. So he stopped by McDonald's and he got like an extra sandwich and he told Kedah Jesus, look, you lived in, you came to the manger, I have nobody. How about you come eat with me tonight? He told me the amount of joy I felt that night, never forget it. He spent many feasts with his family. But that one time, he actually felt his need for God. It was something imaginable, unimaginable. But the people here felt their need for God. After Saul had this fantastic, look what happened. This After Saul had this fantastic victory, see how people reacted. 
Then people said to Samuel, remember last chapter when Saul became a king, some people followed him and some people rebelled against him. Said, who is this guy who is going to become a king? Then people said to Samuel, who is this he who said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Look, there are certain moments in our life where it's very easy to step on people. Very easy to step on people. When somebody is wrong, clearly this person is wrong. He admitted he's wrong, right? And now everybody feels they can have all the right to be, to rage against them. And say whatever they want to say. But here, people said, people said, bring us those people who, 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 who said Saul is not supposed to king so we can kill them. Such an extreme request at a very highly emotionally charged environment. That's why it's always wise not to make decisions when people are emotional. Because they end up taking extreme decisions. And they end up stepping on people. And they end up not giving people a chance. So here we see that they actually said, let us kill those people. And, but Saul said, look what Saul said, not a man shall be put to death on this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Saul gave a beautiful response. He said, nobody should die. Give a very wise response. He says, I don't, want, I don't want people to die because of me. Today is a joyful day. Why should we make some family suffer? Like you, get, you come out of communion, and for example, people start judging others. Today is a joyful day. Why should I make people suffer? And people who do not know how to forgive when they are strong, when they are weak, they will feel their forgiveness is coming out of humiliation, not out of forgiveness. If I don't know how to forgive when I'm strong, like Saul is strong, strong place now. They want to kill people, no problem. But if he doesn't know how to forgive now, if he is in another situation where he's not that strong, he will feel that he's being humiliated. He's for, he's forgive, he forgives because he has to. He has no power to do but otherwise. Shankeda, forgiveness is a power. If I hold on to it, it will free me in all circumstances. Then Samuel said to the people, come, now Samuel goes back, come let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifice of peace offering before the Lord, and there Saul and all men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Remember, Saul was already inaugurated as a king, but people did not accept him as a king. So he went back to look after a sheep. After this huge event of war, now Saul, Samuel told them, okay, now you like Saul, now you think he's a good king, let's redo this all over again. Okay, let's get a, inaugurate him again. Let's renew the kingdom again. And I think in our spiritual life, this idea is important. Is that every kid, a period of time, 
I go with myself and renew my acceptance of God as a king over my life. And I tell him, God, I want you to reign over every part of my life. Because a lot of times when we go back to our normal lives, we forget a lot of the promises that we have made to God. And we forget the days where we were hot in our spiritual life and the desires and the fire. So every once in a while I want to go back and, eh, and remember these things. I, one, of the, one of the fathers in the area here, he told me that every year in his ordination as a priest, he reads all the vows of the priest. And some people in their anniversary, wedding anniversary, they read all the vows of marriage. And some people, when they ordain the deacons, they read the vows of being a deacon. All of us, as being baptized, I could read the commandments that were given to me as a, as a, as a new Christian. There's a new renewal. Otherwise, I will forget from where I began. But it's important for us every once in a while to renew our promises to God. Now, what's going to happen? Chapter 12 is basically, uh, if you put a title on chapter 12, it's Samuel resignation letter. This is it. Samuel says, you know what? Now you finally convinced that Saul is a king. Now my role is over as a judge. He's going to give them his resignation letter. So we're going to go through it. And you will see that Samuel is emphasizing on two things. One, he's trying to tell them, if you have any charge against me, let me know. And the second part, he's going to remind them of a great sin they committed. And we're going to see why. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. So Samuel here is telling them, look, I am old now, and I have obeyed everything you asked me for. By the way, obviously, he didn't obey what people told him. He always had to consult back to God. But Samuel never did what he wanted to do. When the people asked for a king, Samuel was not happy. But God told, told him, do not be upset, Samuel. They did not reject you. They rejected me. So he heeded to the voice of God. And the voice of God told him, listen to the people. Okay? So Samuel is telling him, look, so far I've been with you since I was young. Now I'm very old. My children live among you. You know them. Everything is in the open. Transparency. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. His anointed is, is a soul. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom I have cheated or whom I have oppressed or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes, I will restore it to you. Wow. Samuel comes at the end of his life and says, look, did I take anything from you? Did I steal anything from you? Did I treat you in an oppressive way? If I've done anything, let me know, and I will fix it now. 
There are a few things we're going to talk about this. Number one, Samuel wouldn't say this unless he's confident of his action. And this is, by the way, a, a, a good definition of confidence that I have read recently. The, uh, a psychologist said, confidence is the ability to see yourself act in a courageous and moral way. Confidence is the ability to see yourself act in a courageous and moral way. Like I know, for example, I'm not talking about me as a person, so I know, for example, that I don't lie. So when somebody tells me something, I don't even have to second guess myself. I already know I don't lie. I'm confident that I act in a moral way. So here he's telling them, he's showing his confidence that he hasn't cheated anybody. Okay? But also more important, he's giving a good example to Saul. He's telling him, what's important is when you come at the end of your life, you come with a clear conscience. I have not cheated. I have not lied. I have not done anything that will heart, uh, sadden the heart of God. Also, the, most, the other part is, he is, first of all, blaming himself, or want them to, this is more of a legal language, what he's doing. He's putting himself on trial, because in the next verse, he's going to put the people on trial. So before he expects something from the people, he's submitting himself to it. That's why, for example, eh, unless you find a parent, a parent mess and curses. And the child, once a child curses, the parent says, don't curse. It's like, mom, you curse. I know, but I am mom. Or dad, I'm dad. What does that mean? You have to submit yourself to the same rules that you submit your children to. Service the same way. I stand as a servant, be like, read the Bible, pray. What about me? I tell my kids, don't listen to bad music. And once I go to my car, once I get into the parking lot of the church, the music is jumping out of the car. So Samuel is first putting himself under the legal trial that he's going to put the people of Israel. Then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. Now he's going to put the people on trial. And his anointed is witness that this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. He said, look, any, this is a legal language. Anybody has a final word? Anybody found anything? No. Then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and your fathers. Samuel is telling them, stand still. Stand with respect. Listen to what I have to tell you. Samuel is not happy. And sometimes when God is sending a message that is harsh or he's talking to me, I have to stand still to be able to listen. I cannot hear the voice of God just simply playing sermons in the background and cooking and dishes and, and going up. It's not going to work. 
I have to stand still. That's what he's saying, stand still. He's telling them, the Lord who raised Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. He's saying them, remember in the old days, you did not have a king. And you were a great nation. The God brought you out of Israel, uh, brought you out of Egypt, and all the nations around you were terrified from you. God raised the high priest for you. He raised the prophet for you. He brought you out of slavery in, from the greatest nation of all times. And at that time, you did not have a king. At that time, you had two simple people leading you. This is important because a lot of times, my happiness is here and I'm looking somewhere else. My happiness is today and I'm looking for something else that will enslave me to make me happy. What prevents you and me from being happy today? He says to them, when Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. He's reviewing some of the history with them. Remember last time I told you, getting out of the slavery from Egypt is one of the most significant events in Israel history. Because it is the biggest yani, example or image of the cross. The Passover, the cross, all the rights that Israel has, I don't want to say all of it, but most of it was in this period. And all of it points to Christ. They were enslaved, they were resurrected. Everything is about this period. So he's telling them, Moses and Aaron delivered, delivered you. And that's why even in the liturgy, we constantly remind ourselves of the work of God in our life. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. He said to them, look, the problem has never been that you have or you don't have a king. The, the problem has always been that you forgot your Lord. Forgot God. If I ask myself, why is it that we get sometime spiritually close to God and then go far? Spiritually close and go far. It goes back to this point. I forget. I forget the moment how it felt when I was so intimate with him, when I was so close to him. When I used to pray and not feel the, the time. When I, when I leave prayer and I feel like I could have gone two more hours. But here he's telling them the problem was when you forgot God, God allowed you to be oppressed. Then they cried out to the Lord and the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. 
He said, but once you sinned again, you repented again, and God delivered you again. I think it's, uh, it's the, he's telling them this is the pattern in your life. You look for something that is useless. You run after it. It enslaves you. You cry to God. God saves you. You find another, another thing. It's just a cycle. It doesn't end. Then the Lord sent Jerobel, Jerobel who was Gideon, Bedan, Japheth, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. All these names are actually in the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, again, if you guys remember, we said the book of Judges is about a period, uh, 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 roughly about 400 years of a roughly about 10 judges. Each one takes a cycle of 40 years. And the same cycle, people sin, they repent, they go back, it repeats itself. It repeats itself. And he mentions here a name, it's called Baden. Baden is actually not mentioned in the book of Judges. But some people say it's similar to uh, other names where there's another person who's helping the judge of Israel. So most likely this is one of the helpers of the judge of Israel that was around. So he's telling them, look, you have, you've, you've, you've been repeating the same patterns, the same pattern, the same pattern, and God is so patient with you, and God has been delivering you everything he's been working with you. Look, verse 12, and when you saw that Nahash, the king of Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Ah, who made them once to have a king? When they saw the king of Nahash, the king of Nahash is the one that wanted to block the right eye. They learned from their worst enemy. They have learned from their worst enemy that they wanted a king. They've seen something that people who don't love God, who don't follow God have, and they run after. People who are not steadfast on God like to dress in a certain way, act in a certain way, talk in a certain way. And I go and run after it. And I say, I want this in my life. A king is telling them, he looked at an evil king to learn from him. You looked at an evil king, you looked for him. And Tarfin, one of the things that I was thinking about recently is how much of the things I personally say and I think inside my heart and my mind is actually me versus things I repeat. What is, your, what is yours and my authentic voices? When I pray to God, how much of my prayer is simply repeated words I've heard? And how much is me actually praying? How much we pick from the environment? And this is what he's telling them. 
Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. He's obviously telling them this now, after already Saul is confirmed a king. So he's not really telling them, I am here resigning and, and, and I'm not going to ordain a king for you. Tell them, no, you got the king, you got everything you wanted. But there is a big problem. There is a big problem that you have done is that you have desired a king. The people asked for a king and God gave them a king, but they never understood the consequence of this request. He tell them, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then you, both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. He tells them, look, this is the important, now, the important thing right now is that you and the king must follow the commandments of God. You shall continue to honor God. You shall continue to go under the divine gui guidance and protection of God. Okay? And then he says, however, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hands of the Lord will be against you, as it was against your father. He's basically telling them, look, if you decide to live in another way, the hands of God will be not with you. Tafin, I'll tell you get a couple of ideas quickly. In the West, certain people have rejected some of the teachings of God. Like I'll give you a couple of things. People in the West have rejected the concept of heaven and hell. And said there are different ideas. Some people said there's no heaven and hell. And some people said, really, there's no hell. Everybody's going to go to heaven and God is going to save everybody. And hell is just maybe, if there's a hell, it's more a temporary thing. You're going to go suffer a little bit and then go to heaven. So this concept is, itself had two two consequences. Number one, people stopped, stopped actually caring about religion, caring about the spiritual life. The second problem that this had is people started feeling, if I am a religious person, or if I want to walk with God, my main role on earth is not to preach a gospel, but to change and impact the political environment. So now, unfortunately, you see a lot of religious leaders in the West have become political activists more than people who preach the gospel. So God's telling them, if you do not follow the commandments, I will turn my hand against you. Because remember, remember, I'll tell you something interesting. If you remember the progression of Christianity, Initially, Christianity was in Israel when it started. Now, the Romans were known to be barbaric. Christianity moved to the Roman Empire. After Christianity was in the Roman Empire, which included North Africa and all this stuff, later on, Christianity moved to Europe, to Germany and, and France and Later on, Christianity moved to America. 
And now Christianity actually, the, the main center of Christianity now is in Africa. In 1900s, there was 1% of African who were Christian. Now, some people say it's up to 80%. And people talk about something called the reverse mission, that people from Africa come to preach to us about Christ. The heart of Christianity moves where people follow the commandments of God. When people stray away from the commandments, the strength of Christianity gets weakened because that's the bond between us and God. Telling him, I want you in my life by following his commandments. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord and he will send thunder and rain that you may perceive and see what your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourself. He's telling him, look, I told you already what's, what's going to happen. I told you the history of your family. I want to show you something. I want to show you that what I'm telling you is not my own words. These are the words of God. Falom isn't, isn't now the time of the harvest. The wheat harvest is a time where you're not expecting any thunder, any extreme rain. He says, I'm going to pray and it's going to thunder. So you can know that this is the word of God. And what is, what is the great sin they have done? Two folds. One, they have desired a king, asked for a king. And sometimes some of the requests we can ask of God could be a sinful act. I ask for something for my own pleasure. And I wanted not for my relationship with God, but to actually separate me from God. It's telling them the mere act, the mere fact that you're asking for this, it's a great sin. The second biggest part is that you did not realize how great of a sin it is. You know, it's, it's, it, by the way, the people of Israel, honestly, are like all of us. The commandments are written in the scripture. You should not have a king but God. God wants to be your king. And then they broke it. No big deal. And a lot of times, it's the same thing. All the commandments that are written in the scripture, we break it, and no big deal. These are the word of God. You break it and don't even feel it. You sin, we sin in front of God day and night. Day and night. And I don't even feel it and know it. He's telling them you've asked for a king. And you didn't even realize it. That you're rejecting God. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to show you the heaven is not happy with you. So Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent a thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feel the Lord and Samuel. Imagine Samuel is praying. Obviously this is a clear miracle. He told them before it's going to happen. They stand and see. 
it's not the time for it. It's a test. It's 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 a test testament to him. He's telling him, "I want you to understand and realize your sin. You haven't repented from this sin." By the way, God already granted them a king. It's not going to change. But God wants them to realize that what they asked for is not what God wanted. Now, look. But this verse here says, And the, all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added, for we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Finally, they confessed their sins. God had Samuel had to yell at them, tell them stand still, it had to thunder for them to say what we have sinned. And honestly, I think the repentance that a soul can offer, because the love of God thunders inside its heart, it's much more powerful than when somebody tells you you have to repent. And I'll give you an example. Sometime, son, a kid does something wrong. So his mom will tell him, you're going to have to see Abuna tomorrow. Okay? He comes to my office and his mom comes, did he talk to you? Did he tell you what he did? Did you tell him what he did was wrong? What kind of confession is that? The kid is scared. He doesn't need to confess. Already his mom confessed on his behalf. Different than somebody comes, comes and says, don't feel like I love, I want to love God. This is what's happening here. It's a repentance and it is accepted in front of God, but it had to be forced out of them. Out of them. And they told him, we have added sin to our sins. They finally owned to their sin of desiring a king. And obviously, certain things in our life we can fully realize at certain point and sometimes we commit different sins in our life and we don't understand its impact until at different points in our life that's why obedience is important because obedience saves me from repeating sins of other people and mistakes of others even if I don't understand, even if I don't understand. That's why one of the biggest requirements of my relationship with God is trust. And Samuel said to the people, do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. He's, 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 Samuel is amazing. He's rebuking them, telling them what you did absolutely displeased God, but do not fear. Do not fear means do not despair. There is still hope. God is still in a covenant with you. He has not rejected you. And the, the spirit of repentance makes people hopefully pray differently. Know that they don't deserve this relationship. This is like the balance of a spiritual life. I am sinful but not hopeless. I'm sinful but not hopeless. Do not turn aside, for then you would go after do not turn aside for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing he's telling them you have to follow and do not go after empty things 
Think about how many empty ideas and empty idols we go and consume our life and steals the grace of God from us. The issue is not the king. Sin, the issue is the idols in your life. You're adding more idols for yourself. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For great his name's sake, for great his, his, uh, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. Wow. God said he's happy to make you his people. They're, they're difficult people. They keep lying. They keep sinning. God said, I love you as my people. Why? Because of his great name, for his great character. See, God forgave them immediately. They said we're sorry, even though the repentance came after a thunder and yelling and all that stuff. God said, okay, I accept you. I forgive you for, for because who I am. But I want you also to know that I want you to be my people. I want you to be my child. That's why we always say, your name that's called upon us. The main reason I can pray is because of God's mercy. Moreover, as for me, far it be from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Wow. Samuel is something else. When they told him, pray for us, they told him, far it be from me that I do not pray and sin against God and I don't pray for you. The fact that he feels he does not pray for the people of God, he sees this as a sin. You guys know this is mind-blowing because the definition of sin in the New Testament is this. is to see something good and don't do it. Regardless of their behavior, regardless of who they are, he says, it's a sin to God not to pray for you. God have entrusted people in my hand, in your hand, and my responsibility to, for them, the number one is intercessor. I pray for them day and night. Day and night. He says, I can't do anything else. This is a great sin to God. It's a great sin for me not to pray for them. I was actually talking to somebody today. I was actually thinking about this yani, for some time. There are some people who were very blessed, like most of us, to be raised in, in a Christian faith with Christian parents in a, in a beautiful, the beautiful church, especially the Coptic church. And we were taught to love our church. We were taught to love our faith. Our parents spoon-fed us the faith. The church spoon-fed us the faith. And we are not taking this as a privilege. This is a responsibility. Just like God created people who are rich, financially and poor, healthy and sick. He have created people with knowledge and people who do not know. So I cannot be as somebody who is rich and go around as if I'm poor. 
That's what he's saying. I cannot pray for you. I cannot, but put this on the altar. But if you, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away both and your king. He's telling them, I will pray for you. Uh, sorry, uh, there's one verse. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things you have do he has done for you. But if you still, still do wickedly, you shall be whipped away both and your king. He's telling them, I will pray for you, but you shall do your part. You shall fear the Lord and serve him. You must take your relationship with God seriously. You must fear the Lord. And I think guys, yani, one of the top driving forces for action is fear. Why don't you drive so fast on the street? You're afraid of tickets. Why do you study so hard? You're afraid to get a bad grade. There's so many things we do out of fear. How many things we do out of love? Out of even our own interest. I'll tell you one final story and conclude. I remember, like, so I, I, was, I was studying, I was doing like my master's and I was studying, and you know, it's really nice to study theology. I said, you know, this is something I enjoy instead of engineering. Who likes engineering anyways? So I said, it's nice to study theology. And after I graduated, the school I was in does not teach, uh, does not have courses on liturgy and rites and stuff like that. So I said, you know what? Oh, there's some Orthodox church uh, uh, schools online that teaches, teaches theology about rites and stuff. What a wonderful thing I want to teach, I want to learn. So I took some classes. And to be honest with you, the amount of effort I put in these classes throughout the whole semester is probably two hours. And I was wondering why. Like when I had to take classes and it's grades and I have to get good grades, even though I don't care, it's not like people are gonna fire me if I, if, I don't, if I don't get good grades. But part of it is like, yeah, there is a system there that motivates you to do work. Even when you take classes that you're interested in, but it's not for grades, the amount of effort you put in is minimal. And sometimes, I know like, we always like to talk about how loving God is a motivation, but at the beginning of our spiritual life, the fear of God is a bigger motivation. The beginning of our spiritual life, the fear of God could be a, a bigger motivation.